Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, including yours. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. Today, we have author Jason Sautel sharing his story from his book, The Rescuer, One Firefighter's Story of Courage, Darkness, and the Relentless Love that Saved Him. Jason was a successful and competent firefighter in Oakland, California. Life for Jason seemed to be perfect on the outside, but he was struggling with a darkness in him that started when he was a boy. Here's Jason with his story. Growing up was pretty awesome for about the first five to six years of my life. Mom, dad, everything seemed normal. You know, being a young kid, I really didn't know a whole lot of anything that was going on around me. And then I got sent to kindergarten. And it's kind of like that's when my life started taking a downward spiral. And it wasn't because of school. It wasn't because I didn't want to go to school. It's just a series of events came into my life at a young age that my parents went through a divorce. My mom moved 500 miles away. And I was left to live with my dad, who is a good man. He served in the Vietnam War, but he had a lot of traumas of his past that would come back to haunt him. And unfortunately, he would take them out on me. So at the age of five, when I or six, somewhere right that area, when I went to um, kindergarten, I remember my mom, because my parents were still together then, she dropped me off at school and I didn't want her to leave. And I was like uh, clinging to her leg. 
And the teacher said, no, no, he's going to be just fine. So they pulled me off or sent her away. Well, then they took me into the high school, not the high school, but the uh, elementary school office. And they cleaned out a janitor's locker and they threw me in there until I stopped crying. And it was horrible because when I was in there, I, I couldn't figure out why I was being punished. I wanted to be, I wanted my mom. What's wrong with that? And these people were punishing me. And finally, I just submitted. But I didn't submit because I wanted out of the, the closet to go be with all the other kids. Honestly, I would have rather have stayed in there. But I felt something at the time. I didn't realize what it was. And it was like an evilness was lurking within that closet and that darkness. And that was the first time I ever recognized evilness in this fallen world. And being a non-Christian and not going to church in my age at the time, it was really hard to explain. So those were my younger years. My teen years was, I mean, it was just straight up rebellious. You know, there comes a point where you don't want to put up with abuse anymore. And so you fight back. Well, when you fight back, you get the exit uh, sign thrown in front of you. And I was basically told to leave my house. So I started doing a lot of couch surfing. I would go up to my mom's house and try to, you know, reconnect with her. But her boyfriend's up in San Francisco. They wanted nothing to do with me. They would, you know, she had a one bedroom apartment. So I would sleep on the floor. And her boyfriends would purposely like kick me when they walked by. But I'd kind of laugh because the beatings I took in my life, I'm like, dude, I have some hardened ribs. A few kicks from a hippie is not going to really hurt me. But emotionally, it still sucked. It was just as bad as when I was growing up in my dad's house, the emotional abuse that I was put through there. So I went back down to Southern California and ended up just, you know, staying with my dad. But it wasn't like we lived together. I would stay there, stay with friends. I was big time into skating. I would start going down to the ocean, go surfing, doing that kind of stuff. So I was kind of like during my teen years, a classic skater outcast um, kind of guy. I never joined a gang. I never took on the ideologies of the guys that were part of the group that I hung out with. But if you think about it, the skinheads, the gangsters, the that crowd, they were close to me, but they accepted me. And it was because I wasn't getting a love at home that I chased the love outside of my house. And they showed me a worldly love that is not good. But at the time, it replaced what was really bad at home. And my high school years, I made it up until the 10th grade. It was my first month of 10th grade. And that's when I dropped out of high school because my whole life, I had no help in school. My dad would be like, the teachers need to help you. And the teachers in return would be like, your dad needs to help you. And here I am a kid in the middle going, well, it's not working for me. So I remember that I would go to school like to do the States project. And I was actually kind of proud with what I created. And my teacher just belittled me. You know, it was like in the fifth grade, she made me feel horrible. She's like, this is all you could do. And she, she yelled at me and she made me go down and sit in the second grade class to finish the project while all my classmates got to go off and celebrate and have a day away from school and go to the park and all that kind of stuff because they did this big history. And, and it just made me feel so angry because I was like, no adult would listen to me. I would go home and say, dad, I need help. And he'd yell, you know, I'm not going to go what he'd yell, but it was basically, gosh, darn it, your stupid teachers need to help you. Then I would go to school and the teachers would be like, well, you have libraries. I'm like, listen, lady, the library is on the other side of town. I'm nine or 10 years old. How am I supposed to get there? Can, can you help me out with that? So a lot of those struggles from my childhood also carried into my adulthood. And I, I wasn't an atheist, but I grew up just so full of hate that I hated anything that was good. So if I saw some of those happy, like kids that were happy because their projects were completed, well, I was really mad because I was like, well, that sucks. They have everything I don't. So I would want to 
push some of my pain on them. And that kind of followed me through my high school years and stuff. And so from the Christian standpoint, my dad taught me that Christians were stupid from day one. I remember they're stupid. And I remember there was a time in high school when there was this girl who was actually reading her Bible. And as I passed by her, I just stopped and I told her and I looked at her, I'm like, you're stupid. And everything in that book is stupid. Everything about you is stupid. And I lit into her. And I had, it was just because like, it's weird when you think about it. I truly believe it was because I was so rebellious. But I think that was actually one of the first times God was really calling me to him. But I was rebelling against because I see a Bible and I see a girl that's happy. And I'm like, no, I'm going to tear you down because I was of the outcast. Because I always figured all Christians were going to be alike and just tell me I'm going to hell. So I'd sit over here in the eighth and ninth grade getting drunk on the high school football field while they were all doing preppy stuff. And and it was just that that rebellion against God coming out early on. And so I was actually very hateful to Christians, even through my early years as in the fire department. There's a part of my book where I actually uh, curse a pastor out of our firehouse. So my nickname in the fire department prior to coming to Christ was actually the demon seed. So it's uh, kind of a crazy story. And you're listening to Jason Sautel talk about the early parts of his life. His book, The Rescuer, One Firefighter's Story of Courage, Darkness, and the Relentless Love that Saved Him, is available on Amazon and The Usual Suspects. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Jason Sautel. His own life story continues here on Our American Stories. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the Donate button and help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast 
NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we return to Our American Stories and to author and former firefighter Jason Sautel sharing the story from his book, The Rescuer. We left off with Jason sharing his abuse-filled childhood with us and how that led him to some destructive behaviors. Let's return to Jason. When I was young and running amok, even though I hung out with those guys, I, like if we went and stole some beer or did something, I felt bad inside. If we got in a fight with another group of skaters, I didn't want to fight them, and I felt bad, but it was just like, okay, I have to fight because everyone's fighting. So I always had this urge inside me to want to be part of something bigger and want to, to help other people. Well, when I was 17, I was getting in a lot of trouble. And I finally realized by the way of the police department, they said, you might want to figure things out here. And they told me about the California Conservation Corps. And to make a long story short, what they are is, you, you know, the brochure says you're going to be in the National Forest building trails and doing all this. But the reality is you're picking up garbage on the side of the freeway in downtown L.A. And so, but what the good part about it is, is they give you a stable job, a work ethic, that kind of stuff. Well, while we were there, there were some fires going on in Southern California. And our job at the California Conservation Corps was to clean up the fire camp and feed the firemen and do all that kind of stuff. Well, firemen started talking to me and, you know, we just started chatting it up. And I knew what the fire department did, but having that one-on-one with him, I was like, so what do you do? Just put out grass fires? Like, no, we go to car accidents. We help people. We go to medical calls, help elderly, help newborns, house fires. And it just something clicked me like, that sounds cool. Number one, because, you know, the adrenaline junkie side of me really enjoyed that. But number two, I saw that he was so passionate about something that was so much bigger than him and helping. So I hopped on board and I asked him, I said, so, bro, what do I need to do to become a fireman? He's all, first, you know, you have your high school diploma. And I was like, well, that job's out. <laughs> so I went back and I actually got what's called the California High School Proficiency Exam, where you can take a test that proves you're, you know everything that would have been taught to you through high school. And they give you an equivalency of a diploma. So it's actually higher than a GED. Well, I took that test and I passed it with a 98%. And I was 17 at the time. I hadn't been in school for like three years and stuff. So it was a total blessing. I passed it. And I went to a local firehouse, which out here in California, instead of like the county fire department, it was the California Department of Forestry. And I applied at that firehouse for the seasonal fire season because they would hire extra guys to help fight the wildland fires we have out here. 
And the captain hired me on the spot. And that's how I got on the fire department prior to Oakland Fire Department was I worked for a smaller county uh, fire department down in Southern California. And it was the start of it all. It was like just the most amazing job on the face here than being able to help and love on people and care for people was just something that I craved more of. I started when I just turned 18 because I couldn't do it at age 17. So at 18 in December, I joined. Well, that year in, uh, it was 1993, uh, was my year I was supposed to graduate from my class. Well, my firehouse was down the street from my high school. So I actually watched my high school graduation because we did outdoor graduations in the hills in this place called the Remota Bowl. So we'd always assign a fire engine, you know, cops would be there kind of, you know, plus good for taking pictures type of stuff. But I actually watched my class where I was supposed to graduate. I watched it from sitting on the top of my fire engine. I remember they're going down the names and, you know, going through the, the R's and then also they got in the S's and then, you know, it's right there. I mean, that's where they would have said Jason Sotel. And I sit on a fire truck and people are like, that's a great story. And I said, no, nah, I was actually humiliated. I was hoping no one would recognize me and no one would see me because up until that point in my life, I was still like living in a fishbowl where I could see happiness, but I couldn't feel happiness. And it was destroying me once again, watching these groups of people, because we only had one high school in our town that I grew up with getting something that I didn't get. And I was sitting out on the side as an outcast, even though, you know, the world looks as firemen is like, oh, look at you guys, you're glorious, you're this and that. I never felt it. So how it progressed from there, we we're on a medical call prior to that time. And I remember a guy was hit by a car and it was just me and my captain on the fire engine because we didn't have the staffing then. And this guy was so severely injured that we needed to bring in a helicopter to fly him down into LA to the trauma center. Well, I was 18 years old with nothing more than a first aid certificate. And I should have still been in high school where everyone else is taking biology. I'm sitting on the side of the road with a guy who's just bad. I don't want to get graphic, but he's really bad off. And my captain left me there with the medical bags to go land the helicopter. And I felt so useless because I did not know what to do. I was a child trying to keep this man alive and the citizens were looking at me to do it. And I didn't know what to do. So that pushed me to go to EMT school and paramedic school because I never wanted to experience that again. How, how could I serve others when I couldn't serve them? That's not okay. So I went to paramedic school. Well, the way that I got on the Oakland Fire Department was we were on a wildland fire and in Southern California in 1993 was the year we had the Malibu fires and the big firestorms and people don't believe it, but California has been burning long, a lot longer than, than just these past few years. And I remember my captain looking at me, he's like, Hey Jason, do you see those city fire departments? I'm like, yeah. He's like, man, they make like 45,000 a year. And I was like, what dude, I'm making minimum wage, which is 425 an hour. I'm going to go apply for a city department. So I started applying for LA city, Oakland, San Francisco. I wanted the big city uh, fire departments after having a taste of it. And lo and behold, I told all the right fibs and they liked me at the Oakland Fire Department and I passed their test and they hired me and stuff. So that's where my transition happened from being a wildland firefighter and moving up into what I call the big leagues and becoming a big city fire department firefighter. I jokingly say my PTSD has PTSD because coming from the childhood that I have and the reason I... I would go in on medicals, and you know, it was part of my job, but the reason I love to go on medicals and the fires is because I loved helping people because helping people helped me feel better. But here's the kicker without Christ in my life, it didn't work. It was like putting a bandaid on an arterial bleed 
or like trying to stop an arterial bleed with just direct pressure. The second we would get back to the firehouse after helping those people, I would take the pressure off that arterial bleed and all the sadness and the emptiness that was living inside of me and the darkness that I was living under would come back to get me. So it was, yes, the PTSD. Yes, the living without Christ. Yes, the issues of my past. And what people don't realize is in Oakland, especially the years that I was there in West Oakland, it was the hub of the crack wars. It, where they had their shows done about it. And we would go out the door on, in our district alone, our area of town, 100 shootings per year where people died. Well, only one out of every five person shot would die. So think about all the people that weren't dying and the traumas we were seeing. Plus, we were one of the busiest and still are one of the busiest firefighting cities in all the United States because being out here on the West Coast, our city was built in the 1800s, early 1900s, and it didn't burn down in the big earthquakes like San Francisco did and have a no economy, high crime rate, no jobs. You know, it, it, we would just go out like you ma could imagine. We would even have the uh, military would send their medics to ride with us to learn how to shoot or how to deal with gunshot victims, because that's how many we went to. Because in wars, yes, major things are going on, but we would consistently go back firehouse, another shooting, back firehouse, another shooting, back firehouse, another shooting. Those guys, you know, they're fighting badly and I'm not taking away from what they do. It's and the, what they've seen and the traumas they've gone through. But because we did it so much, it, it would they would send them to us to learn about it. But the traumas that you take on, the way I explain it is every time you go out the door of the firehouse to someone else's emergency, you're becoming part of their story that you wouldn't have if you'd just been sitting at home, chilling or anything. But then you're also part of their story is someone they're looking to to help them and make it better. And when you can't, it crushes you, especially when you don't understand God's will and you're the rescuer. Because I was like a guy who was trying to rescue people without even knowing how to rescue myself. So I was dying inside. Well, when you're doing that, each scene you go to, you're picking up a piece of that scene and you're putting it in your bag and you're putting your bag. And eventually that bag gets so worn down that it's finally going to drag you down. And I was at a point in my life where I was actually 10 seconds out from killing myself because of it. And um, a San Francisco firefighter who's a friend of mine intervened. And you're listening to Jason Sautel. And by the way, the story you're hearing is not entirely different from a lot of first responders, cops and firemen and soldiers who, especially those who've had early life trauma, bury the trauma and then continue to bury future trauma until sooner or later they can't take it, particularly men who suffer from these machismo cultures, which don't exactly reward this kind of confessional or this sign of so-called weakness. When we come back, more of Jason Sautel's story here on Our American Story. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you 
you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we continue with Our American Stories, and we return to the story of former firefighter Jason Sautel. We left off with Jason talking about the traumas that firefighters carry with them from all that they've seen. Let's get back to Jason and hear how he dealt with, or didn't deal with, these burdens. I would respond to fires, and we would get there while people were still alive, but they burned to death as we were trying to get to them. Well, that made me feel like the big failure. I failed, so I took on the weight of the world on my shoulders. And what I've always done, I've actually shielded myself from that. Like people ask me, oh, what was the outcome of that call? I don't know. I have never once followed up on a victim. When we pulled people out of fires, obviously I know if they survived or not. But like one time we pulled this family out of a fire and they lived. Seriously, like it's it's very rare that that happens. Usually you'll get them out. And most people who are truly trapped, they're either really young, really old, or they have some sort of disability because folks that are, quote, able-bodied, and I'm using the physical term on that, you know, when a fire and smoke is up, we bounce out windows, we jump, we leave, you know. But people with decreased senses, you know, because of something going on with them, unfortunately, we get there. They've been, you know, entrapped for so long, they don't survive. But this family... They wanted to come have dinner with us at the firehouse. And this may sound wrong, but it's how we protect ourselves. We put another crew in there that pretended they were us because I wouldn't show up. I refused to show up. And I know that can be kind of wrong saying, well, you need to let people give you grace. But I also have to protect myself because as a firefighter, you're a stone cold lifesaver. 
You have to shut you off and you have to go out the door. And like, there's a scene in my book where I'm holding a, a six-year-old girl and all I'm trying to do is keep her head covered so the mom didn't see the traumas. I'm sitting in the middle street with her because I didn't want her mom's last memories to be of seeing her daughters just messed up from being hit by a car at 70 miles per hour out in front of our firehouse. And when you do that, you have to be stone cold. You really do. But you still have to be a human being. How do you do that? Well, my safety mechanism is I make patients a system of steps. And I know, again, that sounds heartless, but their airways, their breathing, their circulation, I need to keep it. Okay, they've died. Now I got to slide over here and protect the family and give them the care and the comfort they need. So where I work in Oakland, people are like, did you pray with every patient? I'm like, dude, that's like a movie scene. When you have someone with with trying to stop lungs from doing this and, and put in an airway through their throat, all that stuff, you really don't have a lot of time to pray. It's like I tell people, that's why we really read the Bible. We fill ourselves full of scripture. So when we are encountered with these situations, we know how to deal with them. Well, it's the same thing on the fire ground. And as a firefighter paramedic at a busy West Coast fire department, you got to be ready to serve the patient. So what I do doesn't work for some people. And that's why sometimes there's difference between big cities, small cities doing it. It all hurts. But where I worked, we don't get called out to a cancer patient that's in life because that is part of someone who has gone through the end of life care and all that kind of stuff. We just deal with emergency care. So everyone I've responded to when they died in front of me, they didn't expect to die that day. But everything I've been involved on, I've had seconds and that's it. And so again, that's why I've just had an urgency to preach the gospel to, to anyone who will listen or won't listen in all honesty. Day that we got, you know, we we're first due of the Bay on the Bay Bridge, which is a bridge between San Francisco and Oakland. And so it's not the, the Golden Gate Bridge, the big glamorous one and stuff, but this one, people jump off of it too. Not as many as the Golden Gate. And this one day we were called out and it was the first time anyone ever killed themselves in front of me. Every time we respond to a scene of a suicidal person, I could either talk them back, we get them back or lovingly tackle them. Sometimes that's what they need and then get them to the help they need and stuff because we don't want them to hurt themselves. But no one had ever killed themselves in front of me. And I was talking to this dude and when I was looking into his eyes, this guy was not evil. I want to be clear on that. But it was like there was something in him. And I'm like, hey, bro, come on back over the railing. And I'm like maybe a foot and a half away from him because I had a good bond with him. And he snapped his head up and he looked at me and he's all, I'm sorry. And he stepped back and our eyes locked as he's taking the eternal plunge, you know, down the 300 foot fall into the bay. And when I witnessed that, my whole life just changed. When I got back on the fire engine, all the darkness I had from, you know, the kindergarten story of, you know, feeling something evil in the closet and all that stuff. It came real then because that evilness that I never knew what it was, it became real and I knew it was going to take me down too. So when I got back on the fire engine, that evilness hopped back on the fire engine with me. We got back to the firehouse. It was there. When I went home to my beautiful house, 60 miles outside the city limits that I kept perfect because I wanted it as my nice little place away from the firehouse, that evilness was there. And that all stemmed from the recognition I had from that call. And don't get me wrong. I've been to countless suicides with much more worse ways that people had died, but I'd never witnessed that evil that took them down, take them down in front of me. And so that was one of the roughest calls that I had ever uh, been on. And that's where the series of events of uh, Christ started calling me through um, different calls I responded to and stuff. But I'd have to say that's the most significant one. 
So during that point of being a fireman, I was self-medicating with the job. I never took on drugs, alcohol, anything like that. And, and I'm not saying I'm above anyone. And if anyone's struggling with that, reach out and get the help you need, especially firefighters and EMS, because, you know, we're told not to find the help. But we get, you know, because we're so strong, go get the help. But what had happened was I finally got to a point in my life after that call where I felt something bigger. And stupid church people stop being stupid church people. There's something that popped in me one night as I was being attacked. I was laying in bed and the attacks were coming to my childhood and sweatiness and, and nightmares and true. I mean, the devil was attacking me when I, something popped in my head. There's a little church down the street from my house. And I said, you know what? I want to go in there and see what these people are finding. What's what the goodness is. You know, I mean, I knew I'm not an idiot. I knew Jesus, the Bible and all that. I just never read it. And, you know, the class, yeah, Jesus was a dude, but it's not what all these Christians say he is, you know, type thing. So I go and I put on, you know, and I'm a certain that's why off duty. I would surf quite a bit. So I was wearing my best, you know, surf shorts, T-shirt and put on a nice pair of Vans. And I'm going to go to church with these people. And as I walked up, there were these two greeters and all of a sudden they looked at me and they put their hand up like, you can't come in here dressed like that. Dude, my childhood came back because my whole life as a child, I was told I wasn't good enough. I stunk. I had the wrong clothes. I couldn't even play PE because if I asked my dad for a PE uniform, he would beat me. So I would just say, no, I don't have one. So the coaches would give me a D minus and make me stand up against the wall all uh, PE time. So, so all that came back. And I have a badge in my wallet and I've even pulled people out of fires. I was given a medal of valor, but I don't want to throw that in their face. I'm like, I'm not good enough to come into your church. So I walked away and the next morning I had my suicide plan. And then my whole suicide plan was I wanted to take care of other people. I was going to paddle out on my surfboard about two miles out in the ocean, take my life. But I also had bricks wrapped around me. So take me to the bottom. So no, one, I didn't want to be another firefighter's worst nightmare sitting at Thanksgiving, eating dinner and thinking about me who he found on the beach, you know? And so, so I had it all planned out and a San Francisco fireman actually swung by my house and he's still an atheist to this day. And he invited me to go have pancakes and he doesn't even know why he came over. He just felt that he needed to come over. And you've been listening to Jason Sautel tell his story and his book is The Rescuer, One Firefighter's Story of Courage, Darkness, and the relentless love that saved him. And you can get that at Amazon.com or the usual suspects. And you were hearing the compelling story of him watching a person take his life, jump off the Bay Bridge. And if you've ever been on the Bay Bridge or the Golden Gate Bridge, this is a drop that'll kill you. And to watch something like that, well, it's got to take the breath out of you. And it's got to force some kind of change. And for Jason, it pushed him to church only to be met by Christians who judged him by the way he dressed and pushed him back away. Jason now on the edge of doubt and even deep self-doubt. When we come back, more of Jason Sautel's story and his journey. And by the way, this is the story of many men and women around you who are serving as cops and firemen, ex-soldiers too, and know that these folks, many of them, are struggling with the same exact problems. We welcome stories from first responders, send them to OurAmericanStories.com. The more these voices are heard, the better. When we come back, more with Jason Sautel's story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we continue with our American stories and to the final part of former firefighter and author Jason Sautel. He's been telling us the story from his book, The Rescuer. We left off with Jason talking about his urge to commit suicide, which was stopped by a fellow firefighter. Let's return to Jason and his story. After that, things in my life started changing. As opposed to seeing everything as horrible, I started seeing the good even in the bad. And it would always have a Bible involved or something like that. Well, then one day my niece flew out from North Carolina, was visiting. She'd come be with her cool uncle Jason and stay, you know, like a week. And so I take vacation. She's only like 10, 11 years old. And, and so, well, she wanted to go have dinner at the popular restaurant, which is right by the college. And so I was like, yeah, let's go down there. And as we're there, all of a sudden this girl walks by and I tell you what, she is the hottest chick I've ever seen in my life. And I'm nothing to look at. Don't get me wrong. But as a fireman, let's be honest, you know, a young fireman, I would use it, you know, and so, 
But then she, she was so unimpressed with me being a fireman. She's like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. But she had this glow and she had this love and she had this light coming out of her. And dude, I, I was like, as you can see here, I have no problem talking. But when she came up and I tried your number, like, bleh, 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 you know? so, and so finally I got her number. And the reason she gave me her number and she never does it is she said she liked the way I was treating my daughter. I'm like, that's not my daughter. She goes, oh, thank goodness. I didn't want to date a man with a kid, you know, and stuff like that. Um, but she just saw something in there. And so her and I started dating and she was a nursing student at Sonoma State University and a Christian. And she is the first person that I could ever tell the truth. I didn't lie to try to get stuff. But if people would ask me, what was your childhood like? Oh, it was good. I just grew up surfing and playing sports, right? I, I wouldn't let anyone in. Because the second I did, the evilness and emptiness inside of me would eat it up and destroy every relationship I ever had. And I had some long-term relationships, but, you know, they got eaten alive because they didn't have a foundation. So one day in particular, I was talking to Christy because we had a lunch date and I just got off duty off my 24 shift. And she's like, how was your day? And that's a rough question to ask a West Oakland fireman, right? I'm like, oh, it's good. You know, but it sucks. I was holding this little girl that had been hit by a car and she died and, you know, was dead. And so I was trying to keep her mom from seeing all the body trauma and stuff. And I was just holding her mom and crying with her mom. And it just kind of sucked. And I look over and Christy's crying. And also I thought, oh, dude, Jason, you idiot. You let the filter come off. You told the story that you never, and she's going to walk with me. And she looks at me and she goes, but at least that little girl's with Jesus, right? And my eyes are like, what? you know, and it's the first time I was ever honest again. I said, I don't know what to believe. I was truly at that point in my life, like, I, I don't know. Maybe she is, maybe she isn't. But right now, I don't know what to say. And I saw something in Christy's eyes. And she's like, oh, snap. And I think, oh, great. I'm going to get dumped. So she goes back to school and says, I want to see you tonight. And she worked three different shifts at restaurants because she she grew up really poor, kind of like me. So to, to eat her way through college, she worked at restaurants. And she paid her own way through college, no help from her family and stuff, which was also excuse my language, super sexy. Okay, guys, are you hearing this? That's hot. Okay. But anyways, um, so that night we're going to meet up and I knew she was going to dump me. So I go to Barnes and Nobles and dude, I bought the biggest King James Bible you ever saw. And I'm sitting there and this old lady's like, oh son, I love to see young Christians buying Bibles. And I'm just thinking, dude, I just want out of here before God smites me. Lightning's going to hit. I'm going to be done. I'm the last guy to care about. So I get home, I get that Bible home and I'm start flipping through it. I think I got somewhere around Deuteronomy and I'm like, I got gypped. I got a Bible with no Jesus in it. This sucks. Okay. So, and mind you, I'm not a Christian. I've never been to church. Okay. So I'm like, well, forget it. Do I uh, want to dump Christy or let her dump me? But something he said, just go meet with her. And so as I met with her, it was like 10 o'clock at night at a Barnes and Noble, which is kind of crazy too. in their coffee shop next to her uh, restaurant, she comes in, she sits down and she says, I love you. I mean, we're two weeks in. And I was like, what? She's like, I love you, but I'm not going to continue to date you unless you come to church with me. She never once said, you have to be a Christian, you have to do this. After the fact, I asked her, I'm like, why did you invite me to church? And she's like, you're a train wreck. She's like, I was just me. I needed to get you to church because I, I couldn't even talk to you about Christianity because I, I didn't know how to someone like you, which she knew she needed to bring me the body of Christ. So to speed up the story, I go to church and no joke, the pastor, I talked with him and we had a few talks. He's like, come join my small group. Like, yo, no, I'm not joining a Christian small group. What are we going to do? Freaking cut the heads off chickens and candles. And he just laughs. Like, I love your sense of humor. I'm like, oh, I, was trying to, I was trying to push him away, to be honest with you. You know, so I went and he gave me the unedited full version of the gospel message over time. 
not right away. He saw that I wasn't someone that's like, okay, let's just go for right now. He saw I'd be some pushback. But what hit me was he said, Jason, there's no goodness in this world. And even though you're going out and doing good things, where does it come from? Like, dude, I'm good. I'm a fireman. I've almost died in fires. He's like, yeah, but where's that goodness coming from? He's like, it comes down into you and through you and you want to serve something greater, God. And that's part of what you do. So the goodness thing, plus hearing about the sin, everything. Well, that reminded me of the fire department of we do something for something greater, right? You, and everything. So after that period, we had a, uh, a fire and I almost died in the fire. I got trapped. I got cut off from the crew. I had no way out. We we're in a 20 story brick building built in the early 1920s and it was well involved. And I thought I was going to die. And being in that darkness in that exact room and the extreme heat and the pain, and we're talking, you know, a room that's pushing eight, 900 degrees and I have a pocket of air and I'm trying to survive and I'm screaming mayday for help. All of a sudden the gospel message became real sin. Everything we've gone through became real. The darkness that I recognized was around me. The emptiness that was in me became real. And I thought to myself laying in that fire, I'm like, I don't want to die separated from God. I don't want to die eternally in eternal pain. This is not good right here. And so when I came out of that fire, it was like over a period of a few hours, like it just made sense. It, it was like the light bulb clicked on, you know, it's so like come back up to, to home after I got off shift. I'm telling Christy about the fire. And, you know, of course she's looking at the blisters on me. I'm like, Oh, the blisters, no big deal. I'm an Oakland fireman. I get blistered all the time. And I said, guess what? I'm, I'm totally in on this Jesus thing. And I'm a believer. And she looks at me, she's like, well, I already knew that, you idiot. <laughs> I mean, so there's no glorious thing about it. She's like, oh, I knew you were coming to Christ. There's nothing big about it. And that's what I love about my wife is even to this day, she's that hardcore, loving, feminine in a Christian way, helping be my partner where two become one. But she's still tough on me <laughs> to this day. And that's the story of how I came to Christ, man, was just growing up in, in hell, living in hell, being a fire department. If you were looking out, or looking into me from the outside, all you were going to see was awesome. He had the truck, he had the boat, he had the house, he had all that stuff, right? You can have all that stuff. Give me a smelly one-bedroom apartment with cockroaches that's full of love and Christ, and I'm all in, okay? Because all that stuff's just going to go nowhere. It's going to become dust and, and in. So that's kind of my salvation story wrapped up in a, in a nutshell there. A few years ago, I broke my back and my hip on a fire. And um, the day the doctor walked into my hospital room and said I couldn't be a fireman anymore. It was one of the worst days of my life ever, seriously. But it's become one of the best days because look how God's using it now. So, so what happened was I started Facebooking some of my feelings and thoughts because when I left the fire department, there was an emptiness in me because it's a good thing because I did idolize the fire department. But when I left, I realized God left me there and he gave me over like, a hundred thousand stories that he sent me to think about it most of us live our lives of responding in the world around us i actually got to go be part of other people's stories well i believe when god sends you places and he gives you something he wants you to use them to glorify him and bless others so i started writing about my experiences i put on what i call my scriptural goggles i'd look in my bible I'd read messages. Then I would look back at the responses I went to and say, how can I bless people by tying this message all together? And my Facebook page started growing and growing and growing. Next thing I'm like three, four, 500,000 people like, Whoa, okay. And it's not about the likes or anything. It was just that people liked what I had to say, you know, because I'm writing at the, the freaking ninth or 10th grade level as a blue collared fireman, but I'm bringing the truth to people and they liked it. So 
I was speaking at men's retreats and I'm blessed to speak at churches. And they said, have you ever thought about writing a book where you can put your whole story together? Because as you can see, as our time here together, we can spend eight hours talking about things that I've experienced. And so I said, yeah, but I, I, I have all the stories I write in more like blog form. They said, no problem. You know what? We, we can help you with a writer that doesn't change a story, but he'll help pull it out. Like I'll say, yeah, we're going to fire it with dark and hot. He's like, hey, Jason, explain it to me and bring the arcs to it and that kind of stuff. And so here I am, this dumb fireman from West Oakland. I've never even completed reading a book in my entire life is an author because I had a story to tell, but it's not my story. It's a story God me and I know God gave me and I know God wants it out there because there's no reason someone that's come from my background that has never, I mean, I don't even have a high school diploma gets to write a book and the stories are real. They just got cleaned up in editorial processes and stuff. That's a straight up God thing right there. And that's how the book came together. And it's just seeing the way it's blessing people, firefighters and non-firefighters alike. It's all God. He, he pulled it all together. And a great work, as always, by Madison and Faith, putting that story together. And a special thanks to Joy Neal Kidney for bringing this story to us. And, of course, a special thanks to Jason Sautel for telling and sharing his story with us. And the book is The Rescuer, One Firefighter's Story of Courage, Darkness, and the Relentless Love That Saved Him. By the way, go to rescuerbook.com to learn more about Jason and his book. Go to amazon.com, order the book, The Rescuer, Jason Sautel's story here on Our American Stories. Hannah Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.